Church, good morning and welcome to the worship of First Baptist. If you're seeing this, it is Sunday, June 7th, and it means we made it through what has been an incredibly difficult week in our lives, hasn't it been? This is Wednesday night as we're taping. We're moving things up a little bit this week because the lovely Catherine and I hope to be spending a weekend away celebrating my birthday before I have another one because the next one is the big 5-0 and who knows what I'll be able to do then. Anyways, we're glad that you're here, that you're tuning in, that you've come to be with us and to celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. And as I alluded to just a moment ago, it's been such a painful time in our nation and we've been challenged, really pushed to the brink. It's been a time that has been disorienting, a time that's been confusing and painful. And I just wanna let you know that if you're not all right right now, that's okay. I mean to say it's okay that you're not okay. Because what's been unfolding in front of us has been truly disturbing. Following the death of Mr. George Floyd in the streets of Minnesota and protests kicked off there and around the nation and in addition to protests, riots and in addition to riots, looting and we don't know who's, wait, who are the protesters? Who are the rioters? Who are the vandals? What's going on? It's been very confusing. Absolutely, we want protest. We want justice for George Floyd, and we celebrate any attempts to bring this racial pain to the surface and to let our, uh, our people of color know that we stand with them during these difficult times that their pain is our pain. We want to bear that with them because we're all connected. Dr. King said it beautifully. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Maybe that's the message of the takeaway here that we're in this together. And you know what? We don't get to pick what happens. We don't get to choose the developments, we say, yeah, we're all in favor of protests, but it has to be a certain kind of protest, right? It has to be peaceful, it has to be contained, and, and we're quick to find fault with, with people who are doing it incorrectly. You know, we've had peaceful protests for a long time, right? Do you remember some uh, NFL football players taking a knee? That was a very peaceful protest, and remember the outrage, right? People said they're not American, they're un-American. Well, we don't get to pick the pain that comes to the surface, and we've seen a lot of it over the course of this past week. If you consider yourself a follower of Christ, I want to invite you out onto the leading edge of racial reconciliation. My friends, we ought to be leading the marches. We ought to be at the forefront we ought to be in our personal lives working for reconciliation within our own lives, within our own 
families within our own network of friends and associates? So it's a great question to ask. What is required of me during these times? What is God looking for me to do in my life, in my family, in my community? And then, like I said earlier, to just give yourself a little bit of permission if you don't feel okay. That's all right. This has been unsettling. You know, George Floyd was somebody's son. That was somebody's father. Someone's brother. Someone's nephew. It's tragic. And it should evoke a tremendous amount of moral outrage within us, within us collectively, within our nation. Let's be a people of justice. Let's be a people of prayer. And let's be a people of courage who are willing to stand up and live life differently than those around us. Let's not be like those other three officers on the scene, complicit, idly standing by in the face of injustice. It just cannot happen. That off-color joke that you overhear on the job, that racial slight that you observe in public, to be the voice of courage, the voice of conviction, and the voice of compassion in those situations. And then think about the way we do business in our own lives. It's a lot to process. It's a lot to think about. We need God's perspective. We need his heart. Would you join with me as we take some moments to pray together? God, we thank you on this day for your great big heart. God, the way that you love us, even amidst our imperfections. God, thank you that in these times we are failing forward. God, we're not as good as we want to be, but we're better than we used to be. God, help us continue to grow. Help us, Father, to be courageous people people of conviction, God, people of character, people who move consistently in the direction of your heart. God, we pray for justice in our nation. We pray for justice, God, in our world. A world that already has suffered so much, God, under the shackles of coronavirus. God, as we face even deeper, more systemic, more embedded viruses within us of racism, classism, sexism. God, help us to be a part of the revolution, a part of Jesus' counterculture, being the people that you've called us to be in these times. God, make us agents of change, of healing, and of peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love familiar words. There's something that's comforting about them. 
I love a motto or a slogan, a story that I can recite from memory or a joke. This depraved mind of mine can remember jokes from so many years ago, all the great information. I can't remember some things stick. We love familiar words. We find comfort in them. Familiar passages from the scripture, favorite Bible verses, ones that we've memorized that have become part of the, the fabric of our lives. The problem with that is we think we know what they mean, and we might not. In other words, we might actually have it wrong. I wonder about that in terms of Jesus' great commission. If you're not familiar with it, it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. It's the very last thing that Matthew relates to us. Chapter 28, verses 16 and 20, the heart of it is, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That is sort of a motto for the church. It's sort of a refrain that we repeat again and again. It gives us purpose, and it gives us meaning. It, it offers us direction. It's all about mission. What do we hope to accomplish as a congregation? What are we out to do? Our aim, right, is to make disciples. And so that language has sort of become a part of everything that we do in the church. But when that happens, I'm afraid that it kind of loses its punch and its power. Or even worse, that we assume we know what Jesus was talking about when in actuality we've settled for something that's entirely different than his original intent for the church. You know, the more I think about it, the more I believe that's exactly what's happened in the church. We've lost the original intent of the Great Commission, and in so doing, the church has become increasingly anemic and voiceless and powerless in terms of transforming our culture and the world around us. That's a pretty bold statement. That's pretty strong what I've just said. Really, it's a huge wholesale confession that in the church, we've gotten it wrong. We say we're making disciples, right? We give lip service to this. But is it really reflective of the things that we're doing on a day-in and day-out basis? Does it impact the way that we live our lives? That's what mission is about. Any type of statement that gives meaning and purpose to our daily decisions, that's the intent, really. I don't see it happening in the church. So I want to back up with you and maybe hit pause and rewind and go all the way back to the beginning and, and see if we can. I mean, it's even presumptuous to think that we can, but let's try. Let's try to look at this through a brand new lens, an entirely new set of glasses. Let's try to begin with a blank slate, and let's look at it in a way that will only end up being corrective to our advantage. That's a lot.
Matthew 28, verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Here we have the context of the Great Commission. The disciples went to the rendezvous point where the risen Christ had instructed them to go to the place in Galilee where they had gone before and before and before. It's a place that Jesus would meet with his disciples. And in that meeting, we see from the very beginning that the context of the Great Commission is shrouded in mystery. And the context of the Great Commission in our time is surrounded not by mystery, but, but by certainty, as if we knew it all. As if we were coming from a superior position, like we had it all figured out, right? The original disciples didn't have it all figured out. It was still coming together for them. There was still so much that they didn't understand about Jesus. And that's the tragedy in the contemporary church is that we serve up a platter of familiar Jesus with a few stories and a few anecdotes and, and he doesn't rock the boat too much. He's a really nice guy. He's got beautiful, blonde, flowing hair and blue eyes, and he wouldn't hurt a fly. That bears no resemblance whatsoever to the Jesus of the gospel. Jesus, who was a political revolutionary. Jesus, who was overthrowing the, the, the standard ideology of the religious elite and, and the political people in power, Jesus was always messing with the establishment. And Jesus was always saying enigmatic things that left his disciples scratching their heads. What did he say? What did he mean? But in the contemporary church, we serve up a, a, a Jesus that that doesn't offend anyone. A Jesus that you can totally understand. A Jesus who's absolutely on your side all of the time. But guess what? If you read those gospel stories, and if you don't see yourself as the villain in the story, you're not reading it correctly. If you read through the gospel narrative and you're not offended by what Jesus has to say, you're not reading it correctly. What we have is traditional Western Christianity that's been sterilized and polished and bears very little resemblance to Jesus of the New Testament. I am convinced of it. I'm a planner, you know. I've been looking ahead at the lectionary texts. Beginning July into August and September, they're all in Matthew. The gospel lessons are all in Matthew. I'm going to camp there. I'm going to hang out with you for the summer. 
in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to drill down on this. Because like Paul said in the New Testament, I want to know Christ. I want to know Jesus for who he is, not for who I thought he was, not for who I wanted him to be, not a Jesus on my side, but Jesus as he is. Jesus I don't completely understand. Jesus with room for mystery. Jesus that I can worship, but in my worship there can be doubt. They were with him live and in the flesh. And they weren't sure what to make of him. They had doubts. That's where discipleship begins. It begins here with a rendezvous with the risen Christ in which we worship through our doubts. And unfortunately, we have replaced mystery with certainty, thinking that you can know it all. You know A, B, C about Jesus. You're in the club. You're good to go. Jesus is on your side. I don't think so. I think that's a golden calf. I think that's a false god. I think we've gotten too far afield. Well, what about the aim of discipleship? Verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, here are the words. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There is the primary verbal idea of the Great Commission, Jesus said, go and make disciples. Could also be translated, as you're going, make disciples, because the primary idea is that verb mathetes, that's from where we get our word disciple. It means learner. And that's the primary aim of the Great Commission, is to make disciples. But what has it been all about in the church? making converts, right? Asking people to believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you're good to go. Your ticket is stamped and you are on your way to heaven. You don't even need to pass go. You're good. But the aim is to make learners, lifetime learners. This is where we see in the church that we've replaced character with conviction. We've replaced character because you and I are intended to be formed into the image of Christ. That's God the Father's goal for us, conformity to Jesus. So obviously we would have to be learners. We'd have to possess a certain amount of openness and humility that's what comes to learners but instead of learners whose ears and eyes and hearts are open we've said no you just need to be a person of conviction and you need to believe certain truths and if you'll believe these things Jesus was born of a virgin Jesus was raised from the dead Jesus this this and this and If you believe that, if you give mental assent to it, then it's fine. But guess what? That stuff, those beliefs, those convictions don't touch the core of who we are and consequently don't provide transformation. I'm not calling for us to be a people who don't believe anything. But I'm calling for people to be a people of character, people who are who are learners, 
What would that mean in your life? If you possessed a true openness, a curiosity, a curiosity on fire to know and to be like Christ. And what if we approached the scriptures in that way? Looking for not what are things that can change my beliefs, but what are things that can change my behavior. It means we enroll with Christ in school in terms of how we live our lives in the every day. So the aim is disciples who are full-grown, mature people possessing a depth of character. And the way that that happens, the thrust of the Great Commission is seen in the way these learners grow. Jesus said, teaching them, verse 20, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. The problem is that we've replaced practice with position. We've said if you believe these few things, then you're okay. And what happens then is we sort of give collective assent to things that we really don't believe at all. We don't believe a word of it. Oh, you believe? Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe. You believe? Oh, yeah, I be yeah, I believe. We don't believe any of it. And as a consequence, our lives aren't changed, not in the least. You wonder about people who kind of go away and wander away from the faith, and you think, how could that happen? And these people that we thought were here, they're with us, they're so solid, and now where are they? They're out there somewhere, walked away. Maybe they were never with us in the beginning. Maybe they never really had an encounter with the risen Christ. Maybe you haven't. Here's the tragedy of the Western church in our times is that you can be born into, spend your entire life in, and die in the church and never have an encounter with Jesus the Christ. Never experience discipleship to him. That's why our lives are the same year after year after year. We're not committed to the process of transformation. What Jesus asked for his original disciples to embrace was a practice, man, a daily practice of following him in our behaviors, in our attitudes, in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we live out our priorities. All of that would be reflective of our discipleship to Jesus. It means that we would have to interact with him in the difficulties of our lives. It means we'd have to invite Jesus into our anger Invite Jesus into our pain. Invite Jesus into our shame. Invite Jesus. In, and we don't even allow ourselves into some of those places. We sure don't want anyone else there. Least of all, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Guess what? That's not who he is. He might come into those dark and dirty places of our lives and kick the door down and overturn the tables and, and transform us. We're afraid of that. So we don't even go there. We keep it all buttoned down. We keep our church self here, our private self here, and never the two are going to meet. Well, guess what? That's selling ourselves short. 
That was never God's intent. What he desires for us is transformation, and anything less is going to be a failure. A failure of the church to embrace, practice, and invite others to embrace and practice Great Commission living every single day. It really is revolutionary. Giving careful attention to everything that Jesus commanded, he said a lot. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are our New Testament roadmaps to the life and times of Jesus, to the controversy of Jesus, to the chaos of Jesus. Inviting Jesus into your life may well complicate it, may well increase the level of pain and irritation. But anything less is nothing at all. And why would we be willing to settle for that when genuine transfer, transformation is, is at our fingertips? I think it's because of fear. I think we're scared. I think we're scared in our lives to get real. We're scared in our lives to invite God in because we're ashamed. Guess what? We're all a mess up in here. We're all a mixed bag. Some good, some bad, a lot we don't understand. And Jesus comes along, right? And he's enigmatic and he's different and sometimes he's indifferent and sometimes he says things that offend us. Sometimes he says things that assault our sensibilities and when we truly and honestly read our way into the text, we're offended. We don't know what to make of Jesus. But I'm going to tell you this, he is absolutely the real deal. And at this point in my life, I want what is real. And I'm not willing any longer to settle for what's counterfeit. Man, these times are, are too challenging. It's too tough. It's, we've gone beyond the point of, of playing, playing house here at church. It's different. Everything has changed. There's no going back. I think we go all the way or we go home. I want to invite you to come with me all the way. Let's pray. Father, forgive us the presumption of thinking we know and understand who you are in our lives. Give us courage to see the real. God, to see you as you are, not as we would have you to be. Give us courage, God, to face our demons. Give us courage to confront the realities in our own lives that we've kept hidden even from ourselves. God, help us to be honest and humble and painstaking about this phase of our development. God, we thank you for your ruthless commitment to us and for the commission, Jesus, that you've given us to embrace in our lives and to share with others. May it be in these days, we pray.